0: This episode contains coarse language, stories of drug abuse, sexual situations, occult themes, and described acts of violence. Discretion is advised.
1: Diversion Podcasts
0: This is Backstage The Devil in Metal, unheard stories of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from the legends of metal music. Black Sabbath, Metallica, Judas Priest, and dozens more. In this episode...
2: Let me just say, there was never a moment in my life when I was ever ashamed to play this kind of music or tell anybody what what I did. Uh, Because to me, this is the hardest kind of music you can possibly play. Uh, It's so difficult to do, but if you can capture it, uh, it gives you the most satisfaction of any other kind.
3: I said, Ronnie, you're fighting a dragon on stage, and you've got this great theater going on around you of who is this guy?
4: He's one of the greatest voices in rock history.
5: I am the nicest human on earth that possessed it.
6: The man
4: with a voice that could pierce chain metal. He's
1: just a very special person.
0: On July 12th, 2021 metal royalty gathered from across the world for the Stand Up and Shout livestream benefit. The band Dio's Disciples, which is composed of Dio members including guitarist Craig Goldie, drummer Simon Wright, and keyboardist Scott Warren, played Dio and Black Sabbath songs with some of the best veteran and recent singers in metal, including Lizzie Hale of Hailstorm, Joey Belladonna of Anthrax, Tim Ripper Owens from KK's Priest, and Glenn Hughes. Other performances came from Rob Halford of Judas Priest, Tenacious D, and teenage guitar whiz Jasmine Starr. And tributes and birthday wishes came in from Black Sabbath's Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, Sebastian Bach, Sammy Hagar, Lita Ford, and others. It seems one of the only metal luminaries to miss Ronnie James Dio's 79th birthday commemoration was Ronnie James Dio. Who died of stomach cancer in 2010 at the age of 67? All proceeds from the Stand Up and Shout benefit concert will go to the Dio Cancer Fund, which is a good enough reason to check out the show. But for the scores of viewers that continue to stream the event, it wasn't the primary motivation. More than anything, Stand Up and Shout was a chance to see great musicians perform songs spanning Dio's career, as the vocalist of Rainbow, Black Sabbath, their alter ego Heaven and Hell, and his own band, Dio. More than a decade after he passed away, Dio is still considered by countless fans and musicians to be one of the greatest, if not the best, metal vocalist that ever lived. His full throat of vibrato resonated with power, yet he could sing with hushed sentimentality or savage rage, and he could hit high notes without sounding shrill or losing any of his seemingly endless supply of energy. And that was just his one-of-a-kind voice. Dio was just as adept at writing trenchant music lines, anthemic melodies, and infectious hooks. His lyrics were clever and filled with wordplay, imagery, and even pathos. And though he stood just over five feet tall on stage, He seemed twice as tall as most of his peers, exuding confidence, mystique, and a little bit of evil. For Alice Cooper, that sinister quality, combined with the vocal talent and stage presence, made Dio exceptional.
3: You can't invent charisma. Charisma is something you either have or you don't have. You know, that's something that that comes from inside and, and radiates out. He had that charisma, He had that aura around him, and I think he knew how to nurture it into being that character. Exodus main man and former Slayer
0: guitarist, Gary Holt, first discovered Dio in the mid 70s when he heard Rainbow's debut album, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, which featured a then relatively unknown vocalist named Ronnie James Dio.
7: Well, you know, the first time I ever heard Rainbow, it changed my life. You know, it's my favorite fucking guitar player of all time. He was in deep purple, you know. And then hearing him sing Man on the Silver Mountain is like fucking, you know, this giant voice. You know, back then I didn't know he was so, you know, small in stature. But uh, just one of the greatest voices in rock history, you know, and the nicest human on earth that possessed it. You know, just the most warm, genuine guy I'd ever met in rock and roll.
4: Adds D. Snyder. The man with a voice that could pierce chain metal. I saw that in Kerrang! And I said, boy, is that the truest uh, description of, uh, of, of Ronnie's, the power of Ronnie's voice. This little guy with this insanely powerful voice.
0: For Dio, who was one of the most humble legends in metal, every step he took during his career was another opportunity to do what he loved and challenge himself to reach even greater heights both vocally and musically. As he told me in 2008, as Heaven and Hell prepared for the Masters of Metal tour with Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Testament.
2: Let me just say, there was never a moment in my life when I was ever ashamed to play this kind of music or tell anybody what what I did. Uh, Because to me, this is the hardest kind of music you can possibly play. Um, It's so difficult to do, but if you can capture it, uh, it gives you the most satisfaction of any other kind.
0: Hi, and welcome to Backstage, The Devil in Metal, the show that explores the culture, lifestyle, and history of metal to tell some of the stories behind the stories. I'm your host, author and journalist John Widerhorn, and in this episode, we'll explore the life, career, and tragic death of Ronnie James Dio, one of the first and best metal singers who ever lived. We'll examine his pre-metal roots, those prickly years with Rainbow, his triumphant era with his solo band, Dio, and those that weren't as great. And we'll also address how he joined and resurrected Black Sabbath three times, the last of which happened in an almost predestined reunion in the group Heaven and Hell. Finally, we'll look at how the band boosted his career and morale, and the tragic battle with cancer that brought him even closer together to his musician friends and the metal community. And sadly, ended his life. So grab those vinyl classics from the shelf to play after the show and get ready for Dio's wild ride from hell to heaven. During 52 years of making music, Ronnie James Dio recorded albums with Ronnie and the Redcaps, Dio and the Prophets, Elf, Rainbow, Black Sabbath, Dio, and heaven and hell. He was constantly driven by success, but he was just as motivated by his career disappointments, most of which he overcame and rose above. He was an optimist and a workaholic determined to learn from his mistakes and avoid emulating the wild egomaniacal behavior from some of his peers he didn't like or respect. He drank and smoked weed a good amount in the 80s and 90s, but he always wanted to be in control of his mental faculties. So he usually didn't party as hard as his bandmates or other musicians, which wasn't a problem at first, but which caused a rift later in his career. More on that soon. But first, let's talk a little bit about Ronnie's early history. Ronald James Padavona was born on July 10th, 1942 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where his father was stationed in the Army during World War II. After the war, the family returned to Cortland, New York, and Dio started singing in his church choir. That might have taught him about melody and harmony, but he cultivated his earth-shaking operatic vocal style in a less conventional way. As his widow and longtime manager Wendy Dio, who co-wrote Dio's autobiography, Rainbow in the Dark, explains
1: his father forced him to play uh the trumpet from five years old he had to practice three hours a day every night after school so um i think that's probably where his breathing came from his he's being able to breathe uh and sing like an opera singer because of his uh, his training with uh, with trumpet dio's
0: first band was the vegas kings a soulful bluesy group he joined in 1957 a year after Elvis Presley released his self-titled first album. The Vegas Kings changed their name to Ronnie and the Rumblers and then Ronnie and the Redcaps. The band gigged on occasion, but they didn't get far since Ronnie was still in high school, though he fully exercised his musical abilities in the band by playing trumpet, bass, and singing. In 1960, the group released two impossible-to-find singles, the first was Conquest, a surf instrumental. With the same lineup, the band put out An Angel Is Missing as Dio and the Prophets, marking the debut of the surname Dio, which he modeled after the mafia figure Johnny Dio, and which Ronnie would use for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, it was Johnny Dio, the mafia guy, which a lot of people think, you know, mafia's romantic, although, is it really? Go into it, they realize how bad it is, but, you know, it's, 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 like, it's like a Robin Hood kind of thing, you know, the Mafia, Johnny Dio, a big, cool guy.
0: Dio graduated from Cortland High School in 1960 and entered university at Buffalo, where he played trumpet in the school band. His final educational institution before entering the big-time School of Hard Rocks was Cortland State College, where he majored in history but dropped out to devote more time to his band. He kept the profits going, and the group played small New York clubs and frat parties, and recorded the 1963 album Dio at Domino's. The group received some attention, and were offered a deal by Atlantic Records to record a 7-inch for the strangely titled song, The Poo pa doo Despite its failure to do much but collect dust, Dio and the Prophets released 10 more singles on tiny labels between 1962 and 1967. His band may have lacked direction, but Dio never lacked determination. And he was fairly optimistic, even in dire times.
1: Ronnie was never a defeatist. He was always, you know, he was always a, a optimistic about the next thing or what he was gonna do or whatever. He just, you know, he, fall off the horse, you'd get back up
0: and do something else. In nineteen sixty seven, the year before Black Sabbath's vintage lineup formed as Earth, Ronnie James Dio added a keyboardist and transformed the Prophets into a raw bluesy band, the Electric Elves. The following year, guitarist Nick Pantis died in a car accident that landed Dio in the hospital. When he recovered, he reformed the group as the Elves, and finally in 1972, Elf. That year, they released their self-titled debut on Epic Records. It was produced by Deep Purple members Ian Pace and Roger Glover. So it's not so surprising that when Richie Blackmore quit Deep Purple, he recruited Ronnie and the other Elf members to perform on Rainbow's 1975 debut, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Soon after he joined Rainbow, Dio met Wendy, who was friends with some of the other band members' wives and was invited to a party following the recording of Rainbow's debut. She was impressed by Dio's talent and gift for Gab, but wasn't immediately smitten. Maybe she was just too freaked out by the bizarre occult rituals that went down at Blackmore's place.
1: When uh, Ron is in Rainbow, we used to do a lot of seances and things like that, and thing, even though it was kind of scary at times. When, um, they were recording at the Chateau in, in uh, France, which is in uh, what we used to call it Horaceville. And one night we did a séance, and um, we asked for um, who it was, and said it was, it was Ball. And he was going to wipe all the tapes out and everything, and he did. Every night they would go and record, and then in the morning all the tapes would be uh, blank again, and they'd have to start again. And then one day we did a séance and that. Uh, it was the last one we did and the glass just broke away and went right around the table and smashed on the floor we all ran away (laughs) ran to bed (laughs) oh my god yeah oh yeah no and i got pushed down the stairs by somebody there's no one behind me and i i pushed down the stairs at which point i went back home richie was definitely into it yeah i think he instigated it
0: ronnie was stricken by wendy's charm and beauty and made it clear he was interested in being more than friends she wasn't interested but Dio was as determined to win over Wendy as he was to be an accomplished singer in a stellar rock band. And eventually, his persistence paid off. Eventually.
1: I just uh, thought he was a bit too short for me and just laughed it off, but he continued following me around and talking to me. And uh, I think I really fell in love with his brain, actually, because he was so, he was just a very special person.
0: Even amongst those who knew him, Steele had a reputation for being humble and laid back, yet he exuded confidence and is remembered by many as someone who instantly connected faces and names even a couple years after a first meeting. With very few exceptions, everyone who knew him was won over by his personality and found him easy to talk to.
1: He actually had a gift that he could talk about any subject with any person from eight to 80 and find something interesting about them. He always seemed to draw uh, people uh, what was out of them to get them talking about themselves because he was really interested in people. One
0: individual Dio wasn't especially interested in spending time with was Richie Blackmore, the guitarist and ringleader of Rainbow. After the 1975 album Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, Blackmore fired all the former ELF members except Dio and hired new players, including bassist Jimmy Bain, who would eventually join Ronnie in Dio. Rainbow released Rainbow Rising in 1976 and again shuffled the lineup for 1978's Long Live Rock and Roll. Dio should have seen the writing on the wall. He and Blackmore were both confident and talented but that's about all they had in common, aside from musical chemistry. Black Sabbath bassist Geezer Butler says countless artists have harbored animosity towards Blackmore over the years.
8: I mean, if you're a singer, you hate him. Ronnie didn't get on with him at all, and being gone certainly doesn't get on with him.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh,
8: they respect him as a musician, but apparently he's supposed to be a bit of a weirdo. But, you know, that's their opinion, it's not mine.
0: After Long Live Rock and Roll came out, Blackmore fired Ronnie.
1: He was fired from Rainbow because they wanted him to write more commercial. Uh, Richie, the management and the record label were all pushing Ronnie to write more commercial more love songs. And Ronnie said, that's not the way I write. And so therefore it was time for him to leave.
7: And that's right around the time that you you, uh, were dating or you married him, Right.
1: Uh, we were married in April, and I think this happened in, like, mm, maybe around August, September.
7: Mm, was that a, a, devastating, a devastating blow? Did it seem in the short term like, oh, God, what are we going to do now?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when we were in Rainbow, uh, we had a big house to live in and a nice car, but we didn't really get much money. I think we used to get about $150 a week. We didn't get much money. So um, it was very devastating.
0: Dio remained upbeat and the couple moved from their place in Connecticut back to Los Angeles where they got a small house in Encino which they shared with eight other people while Ronnie scrambled to find a new gig. He didn't have to wait long. When Black Sabbath fired Ozzy Osbourne for being too drunk to sing, write, record or show up for practice Sharon Arden who later became Sharon Osbourne called up Iommi to suggest he give Ronnie a shot.
9: Uh, Ronnie came in Uh, Well, in fact, funny enough, I mean, I was talking to Ronnie beforehand. Uh, uh, Sharon told me about Ronnie, of all people, uh, said how good he was and whatever else. And uh, we were talking about doing something with him before, you know, uh, like a side project or something with Ronnie. But when this thing happened, then Ronnie was the first one I suggested to the other guys. I said, well, you know, let's give Ronnie a try. You know, And we spoke to Ronnie and Ronnie was interested and came over to the house and As soon as everybody heard him, I said, well, that's it, you know, that's where we are.
0: Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward may have been sold on site, but for Dio, the move to Sabbath wasn't a sure thing. First, he was a light drinker and a casual weed smoker, and was concerned about being in a band with members that had a reputation for partying as hard as they played. More importantly, while he knew he didn't want to make pop music with Rainbow, he wasn't sure he wanted to play such heavy songs with Sabbath, and there were other hiccups.
1: Well, there was a lot of reservations. Ronnie wasn't quite sure, you know, if that was the kind of music he wanted to do, and um, it was a, it, w- it was a challenging time. But you know, I'm so glad he did it, and he was so glad he did it. But it, we were we were thinking a lot of things, and then Don Arden was managing the band, and that was a bit some complications there. So, you know, he wanted uh, Ronnie to write the album and um, record it and for Ozzy to tour with it. And that wasn't something Ronnie would do. And so um, Don got really mad and released the band of his contract.
0: Without management to guide them, Black Sabbath invited Ronnie to join them for a writing session and see what happened and how they got along. Ronnie was a New York suburban boy, And the Sabs were all Brits from working-class Birmingham, which could have been awkward. But Dio had worked with Brits before and happened to be fond of all things English, which provided plenty of common ground.
8: Ronnie was very much an Anglophile. I mean, if you go to his house, he's got, like, uh, suits of armor and pictures of the old kings and everything like that. His house is completely built on like a, an English sort of castle. So he was he was really into English stuff. And he loves soccer. And I'm like soccer mad myself. Um, we were all always talking about that. And he liked reading books, which I, you know, I'm addicted to reading books. Um, we just had loads of things in common apart from music.
0: When Ronnie came into the rehearsal room, Iomi showed him riffs he had worked on with Ozzy, but which never went anywhere. In no time, Dio helped shape them into the song Children of the Sea. In addition to being an experienced vocalist, Dio was also a strong songwriter and played trumpet, guitar, bass, and piano, so he had a good understanding of music composition. One of his greatest skills, says Iommi, was his ability to take a riff and build a melody around it that didn't rely on the root notes of the guitar part.
9: It was a, good for me as well at that point, because the uh, first time I'd had written with a, uh, another singer in mind, so he gave me a different way of writing in some ways, because uh, with Ozzy, uh, Ozzy would generally sing around the riff, you know, follow the riff. Like Iron Man, you know, did the same as Iron with the riff, which was great. But uh, with Ronnie, he, he wasn't so much want to follow the riff, he'd sort of sing across it, so it was a different, a different feel. So he gave me somewhere else to go uh,
0: uh, musically. If Children of the Sea was, in baseball terms, a leadoff single, the second song Tony and Ronnie wrote together was a home run. Says Ronnie. Tony had this wonderful riff.
2: Dun, 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 carried on, finished writing it, and it was heaven and hell. Knew that was a winner right away. Right away. I mean, that was just a monster right off the bat, that
0: one. The trifecta and the final bit of evidence that the new Black Sabbath was a formidable force was Lady Evil, a bluesy metal song that Tony presented to Ronnie. As
9: soon as Ronnie started singing that, I thought, wow, what a great track. He brought it to life, you know. Any riff, you can have a great riff, and if, if you have the wrong vocal on it, it kills it. And Ronnie just has that knack for putting the, the right vocal on, you know. And Lady Evil came alive when he started singing that.
0: It wasn't long before Black Sabbath finished the songs for Heaven and Hell and made plans to record. Without the confidence of their label, the band had a diminished recording budget. So they flew to Miami and worked at Criteria's studio. As if recording an album in a lower cost studio with a new singer and no management for guidance wasn't hard enough, Black Sabbath had to navigate other obstacles before they could complete Heaven and Hell. Drummer Bill Ward was dealing with tax problems and had to relocate to Paris. Rather than hire a new drummer and teach him all the songs, Black Sabbath decided to fly to France to work with Bill, since he knew the tunes. He was also the only drummer Butler had played with. For his part, Butler had to take some time off from the album to sort through the wreckage of a messy divorce.
8: I'd done the divorce, I was really, really happy and, in, and ready to concentrate on music again. So yeah, I loved it when I came back. And went to Paris and wrote Neon Nights and that was the finish of that album
0: Between the time they met Dio and submitted Heaven and Hell to their label Black Sabbath exhibited great poise and determination and they wrote and recorded their most important album in years and they emerged victorious Anthrax guitarist Scott Ian still marvels at how Sabbath rose from the ashes and soared like a dagger-toothed demon
2: and then they come back with heaven and hell in 1980 and i mean what a statement i always consider the first five sabbath records as to be the bible that's like the the five first five books of the bible of heavy metal and uh heaven and hell fits right in it's as it's as good if not better than some of those albums and i know some people oh that's blasphemy but um i think that record is as as great as anything they'd ever done and uh just mind-blowing to be able to come back
0: as the new frontman for an established band, Dio was determined to make his mark. He wasn't a wild man, as Ozzy Osbourne had been. He was a heavy metal surgeon, an exacting performer who sang with razor precision. He was also a compelling showman, stalking the stage, making theatrical gestures, and playing to the crowd. Oh yeah, and he made the sign of the horns a trademark metal salute even though Gene Simmons and coven frontman Jinx Dawson said that they were doing it first. Flashing the goat was part of Ronnie's mystique and it wasn't a bastardized sign language symbol for love like Simmons did or an occult gesture to greet fellow Satanists as Dawson had used it. It was a dramatic move steeped in history Ronnie learned from his grandmother.
1: For a start, Gene Simmons is, is Jewish and not Italian. Uh, the devil sign, or as you call it, it's, it's really the Moloic. It's called the Moloic, and it's old. It goes back to medieval times when um, you know, old Italians would use it, and Ronnie uh, first you know, would see it being used by his grandmother. He, when he was like five years old, walking down the street, his grandmother would do it to ward off evil or to give the evil eye, depending on which way you do it.
0: As they launched the tour for Heaven and Hell, Bill Ward was showing the strain of long-term alcoholism and exhaustion. He was also facing daunting personal problems that fueled his need to self-medicate. For a while, he held his shit together on stage. Then, halfway through the tour, he ran out of energy and dropped out.
9: I think it was a gradual thing. I mean, Bill was so used to being with Ozzy, he was sort of, you know, his answer to it was he missed, he wanted to, uh, he missed Ozzy and he wanted to do it with Ozzy but also he, he was going through a serious alcohol problem. And Bill left on the, we were doing Denver on the night and it was a big gig. And um, Bill just left, he just pulled out, got in his mobile home and got his driver to to, to go and, and he just, that was it. We didn't know anything, Bill had gone. Uh, just so, uh, we were so shocked, you know.
0: With little time to replace Bill, Black Sabbath scrambled for a drummer to play a major open-air show in Hawaii. They got a CD of music by drummer Vinny Appice, brother of Carmine Appice, from Vanilla Fudge and Cactus. The band tried out Vinny and everyone agreed he could play, so they hired him for the show. It was only during rehearsal, Iomi realized that having played so long with Ward, he felt uncomfortable with another drummer. Then there was the comical reality that Vinny's drum kit looked like a toy compared to the monstrosity Bill had used.
9: I was the one with the problem there. I found it hard to play without Bill. Mm. Vinnie came in, uh, and, and for this show, I can't believe it. We'd done the gig in Hawaii, and I looked on the riser where Bill's kit normally is, and there's Vinny's kit, and there's, it's like about a quarter of the size of Bill's, and it just looked absolutely ridiculous. He got this little baby kit of drums, and I thought, fuck it now. You'll never hear him, you know. But he managed to pull it off, and I was, I was amazed. Because I, I was shitting myself before the gig. I thought, oh, fuck. But no he pulled it off, and, and, and that was it. We, we kept him.
0: When Black Sabbath finished touring for Heaven and Hell, they immediately returned to the studio to write and record their next album. The first track they worked on was The Mob Rules, which was commissioned for the soundtrack to the film Heavy Metal and was recorded at Tittenhurst Studio in England, which was John Lennon and Yoko Ono's old house, where they shot the video for Imagine. The band had a great time and it springboarded them into a rapid writing session for the 1981 album The Mob Rules, which was recorded with Martin Birch at the record plant in LA. While songs like the title track, Voodoo, and the sign of the Southern Cross were solid and the studio sessions were tight and professional, the temperaments of the band members had begun to sour. By the time they started playing shows, Iomi again felt uncomfortable performing with Apisa. Butler was acting aloof and Dia was unhappy with the amount of substances his bandmates were using, even when it didn't impair their judgment or performances.
1: I think Tony shut himself away a lot of the time and. I don't know. It was a, a tense time at that time. Was that
7: something that was uh, very upsetting to to Ronnie? Was he was he uh, confused yeah, by because things started with such a bang with uh...
1: Yeah, but no, he was uh, he was uh, yeah he was very very upset about everything. Yep, mm. absolutely. Black
0: Sabbath recorded Mob Rules tour dates in Seattle, Dallas, and San Antonio for the concert album Live Evil. The record should have been easy to put together and allow the group to take a brief breather before working on their next studio project. However, tensions that spilled over from the road entered the studio, which led to the eventual departure of Dio and Apisa. When they heard the recordings of the songs, no one in the band was happy with the way they sounded, and everyone wanted to try to make them better. Since Ozzy's former bandmates tended to stay up late partying, they wouldn't get into the studio until late afternoon at earliest. Meanwhile, Dio and Apisa, who were keeping more conventional hours, arrived in the morning. So they'd listen to the mixes and tinker with them to try to improve upon what Tony and Guise had done. Usually, they went back home before Geezer and Tony arrived. So when the original members of Sabbath listened back to what they had done the night before, they were surprised to hear a different mix they accused Dio and Apisa of trying to sabotage them. And words flew like bullets.
8: That's what the engineer was telling us. But Because uh, me and Tony would go in uh, listen to uh, what, what I'd done the day before. And it sound completely different. And we kept uh, kept doing this for, like, about a week. And eventually the engineer said, well, I've got to tell you, is coming in and changing everything that you're doing. So... Um, That's what his take on it was. So, you know, sort of confronted Ronnie with it, and that was the end of the band. Ronnie got um, a solo contract with one of others by this time, and he was concentrating more on that than Sabbath.
0: Wendy says it's absolutely untrue that Ronnie had lost interest in Sabbath.
1: I had gotten him a solo deal uh, during the time he was in Sabbath, but it wasn't for, um, it wasn't to be it was just something down the line it wasn't something that he was thinking of doing or, or forming another band or anything until, uh, he until he quit. Yeah, I think that a lot of it was, uh, as I said, Ronnie would, and Vinny would go down to the, the studio and then, um uh, Tony and Terry would come later because I think they drugs or whatever and, um they were paranoid and thought that uh, Ronnie was changing everything and putting this in and doing that, which wasn't at all. It was just paranoia.
0: The lethal blow came when Iommi and Butler confronted Dio and blamed him for trying to ruin the album. In his book, Rainbow in the Dark, Dio writes, Iommi convinced Geezer to call Ronnie and say, quote, I don't think this is working out. We really want Tony to produce the album
2: we were going through a lot of the things that we've we've mentioned to you before that were, you know, difficult and we shouldn't have done and things maybe we shouldn't have thought. We were, you know, a lot younger and a lot more attentive to having a good time, perhaps, or not really caring about each other or what the consequences were going to be.
0: Though Dio didn't want to leave Black Sabbath after Live Evil, the timing was good. And when he launched a solo career, he took Vinny with him and hired Jimmy Bain, who he had played with in Rainbow. Then he recruited a whiz-kid guitarist named Vivian Campbell, who had been in the Irish band Sweet Savage. The album the Dio band wrote, Holy Diver, which was produced by Dio, was a commercial metal smash that was heavier than hair metal, but featured keyboards, blazing guitars, and lots of melody.
1: I think it was a mixture of the rainbow stuff and the, and the Sabbath stuff. Um, just the way he, you know, he was able to write what he wanted to write, do what he wanted to do. I mean, he had actually written um, <clears throat> "Holy Diver" and uh, "Don't Talk to Strangers" uh, during the time he was in Sabbath. Those were four Sabbath songs. Those were songs that he was writing for Sabbath. Uh, but they, and they were completed fully. I mean, he wrote the music, the lyrics, everything on both those albums, on both those songs, as is We Rock too. And um, he just got a band together, and they just they carried on.
0: Holy Diver went platinum, and Dio wrote, produced, released, and toured for four albums and a live EP over the next five years, all of which were commercially successful and put Dio near the top of the heavy metal hierarchy. Lyrically, Dio strayed a bit from occult themes, despite the demonic mascot, Murray, and focused instead on fantasy and history. The imagery from the lyrics fed the concerts, and Dio brought glowing whips, swords, moving dragons, and pyramids to the stage. Crowds loved it. Though Alice Cooper, who thought Dio was a first-rate performer, once suggested to Ronnie that he shouldn't speak to the crowd, take the advice of his lyrics, and don't talk to strangers. Here's Alice.
3: I said, Ronnie, you're fighting a dragon on stage. Yeah. I said, and you've got this great theater going on around you of who is this guy? So at the end of the song, he would go, Hey, thanks, and here's a song we wrote back in 1973. Uh, it's a song about, and I said, You sound like a midnight disc jockey in New York somewhere. <laughs> Don't talk. I said, the, the mystery is they don't know who you are. They don't even know if you're human. So don't let them in on it. You know, that I, I, Alice never talks to an audience because I want them to have this thing of, is he real? Is he, what is, What who, what is this thing? I said, you know, but it was always funny. And I used to go, Roddy, I said, you can't help yourself, can you? <laughs> you know, because he would do that all the time. Hey, uh, you know, the next song is... Uh, a great little song that we wrote and, well, let me think what it was. And, and all of a sudden it's not him anymore, it's some other guy. <laughs> and it used to be funny and, you know, it, 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 he had a great sense of humor, though, you know, about the whole thing. Ronnie and I got along very, very well. With the exception of Vivian Campbell, who insists
0: he was underpaid and deceived by Dio, no one else had any complaints. Everyone in the band worked hard, played hard, and had lots of laughs along the way. As for Campbell, who quit Dio after the 1986 live EP, Intermission, and is now in Def Leppard, he says he was promised a gradually increasing percentage of ownership in the band.
6: The discussion about the um, the becoming an equitable band situation, I, I brought to light after the release of the third record, the Secret Heart album, and we were on the tour in America, and then there was a break in the tour and our next show was supposed to be in England and I flew back to Belfast to, to visit my family and that's when I got a FedEx um envelope with uh this contract in it from Wendy Dio, Ronnie's wife and uh you know it asked me to sign this employment co- contract and, and agree not to ask for anything more than what was being offered and they were offering me a few hundred dollars more a week and and you know, and and I remember the letter. The letter said, you know, failure to return this by blah, blah, blah will be constituted as, you know, you, you, know, deeming that you're no longer innocent being with the band. So I obviously didn't sign it. I didn't send it back. And they'd been prepared for it, obviously, because, you know, like within a week, the band did a show and did a UK tour with Craig Goldie on guitar.
0: Wendy dismisses Campbell's claims as sour grapes.
1: He was very arrogant, and he just thought he was... You know, he uh, in the end he just thought he should be getting as much as what Ronnie got, and that it should be equal and everything else. But you know, as, as I say, he you have to pay your dues in this business, and he certainly hadn't paid his dues. I mean, Ronnie always called it a band, but it wasn't. It was Ronnie. It was called Dio. It wasn't called Vivian Campbell.
0: Various musicians amicably came and went over the 21 years Dio released albums but Apisa remained dedicated to Dio for most of his career and played on seven of ten records before leaving in 1996 after the album Angry Machines. During that time, there were lots of mind-blowing shows, a fair amount of revelry, some good pranks, and quite a few Spinal Tap moments. Dio may have run his band like a well-oiled machine, but the machines he brought on stage to enhance the stage set weren't always in tip-top shape. There were times when a mechanical dragon died before Dio had a chance to slay it. And once, a pyramid that was supposed to separate at the top to reveal Apisa on a drum riser, didn't open as planned. Vinny recalls the chaos and comedy.
4: The pyramid, it it would look great. You know, the beautiful Egyptian set. And we had a song called Egypt. We had sphinxes that shot lasers on the side and smoke and the whole thing. One night he starts playing, I start playing and the top would not come off. And I'm dying of smoke inhalation, you know, in this pyramid. It was small and it was all the smoke in there. And Ronnie's looking back, they're all looking back. And of course we're laughing, they're laughing. Oh shit, he's in there. It's like the musical rhythm of the old pyramid. There's nobody there but a pyramid, but it's playing the drums. Finally, it went up halfway through the song. So things like that happened. And and, then one time with Sabbath, I had the, uh, This is on the Heaven and Hell tour in 1980. Back then they had smoke machines that were just barrels of water. I think it was hot water. And they'd throw dry ice in the barrel. It's oil drum barrel. And that made smoke and they'd blow it out on stage. So all that stuff was behind the drum rises. One night during the song Black Sabbath, of course, we get to the loud part and they crank the smoke, they throw the dry ice in and it exploded and the water went 20 feet up in the air and everybody thought it was part of the show and started doing the horns, the devil horns. Yeah, yeah! And all this shit came down on me and the drums, the dry ice, everything. And then they turn around looking at me cracking up because I'm all wet, the drums are like sponges. There was no sound much. And all of a sudden I realized there's some dry ice that went down the back of my pants on my ass, and it was burning That it sticks to your skin. And I'm stand, sitting there in front of 10,000 people, uh, and they're cracking up. I go, oh man, this is burning. I gotta go. I ran off the stage, went to the medics, and there's two women, of course, pull your pants down, and they're picking this dry ice off my ass. Pieces that stuck, you know, that burned the skin and everything.
0: As with many other metal bands, The rise of alternative rock in the early 90s caused career problems for both Dio and Black Sabbath, when fans started abandoning metal for trendy groups like Nirvana and Soundgarden, and record label executives slashed their metal rosters and gave very little attention to the few bands that remained with the companies. That's one of the reasons why, in 1992, Ronnie returned to Sabbath to record his third album with the band, Wendy says that when he was first approached with the idea of doing another record, Theo was ambivalent and needed some prodding.
1: Tony had been had a lot of different versions of Black Sabbath since Ronnie had left, and uh, I think uh, Tony wanted to get together with Ronnie, and the and he had, the record company had called and talked about possibly having you know Ronnie and and, and Tony uh, doing something together, and Ronnie wasn't really interested because he had his own band. But then um, they were playing. Um, uh, they were. Ronnie was playing in St. Louis, um, where uh, Terry was living at the time. And um, somebody called from his office to my office and said um, that Giza wanted to come down to the show. So um, I said to Ronnie, well, "Well, what do you think?" He said, "Well, time to bring his bass." So he did, and they got up and played, and it was fabulous. And that's when Ronnie, I think, decided that that that's that's.
0: Do it, do it again. Ronnie, Tony, and Geezer wrote some scalding tunes, and after Sabbath's then-drummer Cozy Powell suffered a horse-riding accident, Sabbath brought back Vinny Appice, and the band clicked like they did a decade earlier. But it soon became apparent that the third Dio Sabbath album, Dehumanizer, would get little love from the mainstream media, and it sold poorly.
2: The humanizer that was, you know, so panned and so critically unacclaimed and so um, unbought by the public, you know, suddenly has this turnaround that people are going, on, it's my favorite album. Well, you know, perhaps, it, you know, it wasn't the right time for it. But now listening to it now, it's the same great album. And I think it's one of the best I've ever been uh, associated with. One of the best Sabbath albums that we've ever done.
8: I suppose it wasn't uh, promoted like we wanted it to be. Um, we started off in South America; and it was a great reception there and, there. and I mean, live. It was, it was going great, but uh, as you say, like you know, people weren't really buying metal by then, and we were getting old and sort of past it by then.
7: But why not uh, stick together with Ronnie for another uh, another go?
8: Because as usual, they end up arguing together. I think that was, didn't that one end with us doing the Aussie farewell tour, thing?
7: Yeah, I think there was uh, the Aussie farewell tour that they wanted uh, Sabbath to open. Was that the case? Was R- Ronnie would be on stage and Ozzy, and that was offensive to Ronnie?
8: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Ronnie refused to do it. And me and Tony thought it was, I mean, we agreed, me and Tony. We thought Ronnie would too. You know, it was just that a nice thing to do. Supposedly, I was his very last gig with the, the original band. And uh, Ronnie just said, No, I'm, I'm not doing that. So he said, Oh, well, we're doing it. So, and he got into a bit of, uh, he didn't like that me and Tony were going to do it. So that was the end of that band.
7: Do you think it was a mistake now to have done it, or do you think he was being childish and. Uh... Not too much childish, I think stubborn. Stubborn, for sure.
8: Yeah. He was, he, one, he was very stubborn at times and uh, it was hard to get through to him and he was like, uh yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I could understand his point. You know, he didn't want to go on before Ozzy after he, to him, he, he built Sabbath back up and he didn't want to go on before Ozzy kind of thing. So, uh, you know, we respected what he said, no, and that was it. We knew it was pointless arguing with him. So we did it and, we had a good time especially with Bob Halford coming and singing uh, it was good
1: and Ronnie said no, no I'm not I'm not opening to Ozzy there's no way I'm going to do that he said plus the fact I think what what they want to do is uh, uh, announce that they're uh, back together with Ozzy why should I be there and have egg on my face so I'm just going to leave so he did I don't know what was going on I just know that Ronnie felt uh, very hurt by the whole thing and that he thought the best thing was to just uh, to just Bow out he did.
0: Stung by Black Sabbath for the second time, Dio and Apisa returned to Dio, and a year later, they released Strange Highways, a bleak, dark record that reflected Dio's resentment over the current music climate and his disappointment with his former bandmates. Like Dehumanizer, it was a good metal album, but it hit at a time when metal was passe.
2: For a long period of time, none of the music that any of us were making was, was being given any attention at all um, because it didn't sell, you know, it didn't sell acne cream or it didn't sell, you know, whatever, whatever needed to be sold. Let's face it, face it all, this is pretty much of a commercial venture anyway. So unless you could sell that on a radio station or on a, a VH1 or MTV, whatever it may, whatever outlet it may have been, unless you could do that, you're not going to get the look in. And we just never got to in because we weren't selling enough of that product and there was no interest.
0: For drummer Vinnie Apisa, Strange Highways was the beginning of the end of his long tenure with Dio. After the record, he played on the somewhat uninspiring Angry Machines, but he decided he didn't enjoy being in the band anymore and the public's indifference was making him depressed.
4: I mean, you know, we started playing clubs again and I'm like, what a downfall. And I looked at Ronnie thinking, He doesn't deserve this you know i mean he's had such a long career he's so legendary i'm not even thinking of myself i'm thinking of him saying he doesn't belong playing this club in spain you know
0: as a longtime legend of metal ronnie continued to fly the flag for the music he loved by the time he returned to the studio for his 10th and final dio album master of the moon in 2004 rob halford had returned to judas priest Bruce Dickinson was back in Iron Maiden, and both were touring arenas again. Then, in 2006, Black Sabbath's label wanted bonus tracks for the upcoming release, Black Sabbath, The Dio Years. The problem was, there was nothing left in the vaults.
2: We were asked by the record company to do something that was a little bit more special for the release of the album, rather than just some live tracks that people had actually heard anyway, just maybe in a different locale and we we felt that it was important you know that request should be honored because we wanted to to please the people who were going to buy this product and and we really felt that it was not good value for money just giving regurgitated things back again
9: I said to my manager I said well why don't we maybe get in touch with Ronnie see if he'd be interested in just writing a couple of songs for this album and and that's really what we did and it went from there and Ronnie came over to England and uh, came to my house and we sat in the studio and we wrote uh, three
0: songs. The new songs, The Devil Cried, Shadows of the Wind, and Ear in the Wall, fit perfectly alongside classics like Neon Nights, Heaven and Hell, and The Mob Rules. And Dio and Iomi banged them out in just a few days. It was like being back in 1981, creating songs for fans who were dying to hear them. And they had a blast tracking the music with Geezer and Appison. More importantly, the songs came out great and the musicians immediately started receiving offers to play shows. As stoked as he was by the music they had made, Dio had concerns. Writing a new song was great, but he didn't know if he wanted to commit to more touring and recording with Black Sabbath. Everyone in the band was now clean and sober, and they were enjoying each other's company, yet Ronnie was wary of putting his hand too close to a hot stove for the third time.
5: I think it's a different moment. You know, I mean, because things happen during the, the time of your of your tenure in a band, or how long you have stayed in a band you're in. And then once you're once you're not in that band anymore, it's it's almost as though you've been thrown out of your family. You know, it's kind of like Rob would know, I would know. You know, not not that you know, if you decide to leave the band, you suddenly become divorced from that family, and it's almost as, as though uh, you know you never I'm, belong there. So when you come back. I you know, I noticed it myself. I came back thinking, well, I remember what happened last time and the time before that and the time before that. So I think you start leaving your life with a little bit of hesitation within that. Sure, it's always nice to be back with the lads again. Well, this is where we started and this is what we did. But, you know, things happen along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that if you can go back to the situation again, we all so that things that have sure. happened, and Just think how oh, wonderful it's going to be. And that's what's happened to me.
0: Having re-experienced the excitement of reuniting with effective and innovative creative partners, Dio Sabbath, which changed their name to Heaven and Hell to avoid a legal snafu, played a show at the Radio City Music Hall, which they recorded for DVD, after minimal rehearsal, and hardly enough preparation. Even though they were all pros, and they knew they could do it, the knowledge the show was the only one being recorded gave them a case of the jitters.
9: I think it was more terrifying than anything, because (laughs) it was was the only um, show we were doing that we were recording, and we had a lot of problems before we actually went on stage. You know, we couldn't have a sound check because of the union problems, and uh, we couldn't get time to, uh, didn't get a chance to play and go and listen to it in the truck, you know. So it was very much in the deep end, and we had no money to check, so it was very, very nerve-wracking when we went on. Yeah, because you just don't know what's going to happen, and it was the one-off chance. I mean, if it had all gone pear-shaped, then we wouldn't have had a recording. But we were fortunate that way. I mean, we could have, we could have gone on and made a million mistakes, or everything could have blown up, or who knows, you know. Uh, but it, it fortunately went, went well.
0: Heaven and Hell played 11 shows in Canada with Megadeth and Down in 2007, before the March 30th New York concert was recorded for the DVD. They were still flying high and enjoyed getting back out there to play the old songs as well as the new cuts for the compilation album, The Devil Cries and Shadow in the Wind. With engines still revving, the band toured through the rest of 2007 and most of 2008, ending on August 31st at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California, where they wrapped up the Metal Masters Tour, which took them across the country with Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Testament. Heaven and Hell were in good spirits when I met up with them to talk about the tour and the likelihood that they would record a new full-length. And they were as quick-witted and mildly irreverent as ever, answering questions with jokes before sometimes responding seriously. When asked about behind-the-scene antics, Theo said...
4: You know, the backstage
2: things and, you know, I mean, we don't do a lot of extra things and we don't crucify people backstage, we don't slaughter animals, you know, we don't do any of those kind of things. We're just kind of old fogies who after we finish the show are back there huffing and puffing and wheezing and going, <laughs> thank God oh, that's over. Now where are we going to next?
9: <laughs> so, I mean,
2: you know, it's just not in that mode very much anymore of, uh, you know, like uh, one giant, great big party. We have to enjoy ourselves on different levels, you know, maybe a little bit more intellectual level now.
0: Added Diomi. And after oh, 25
2: man. bottles
9: of wine, we, we feel all right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> At one point, Dio said he was keeping it edgy by training failed boxers and fighting on the road and getting into as many bar brawls as possible in his spare time. It was clearly an inside joke, and Dio sadly admitted the band's days of sacrificing virgins was mostly behind them, but not entirely.
2: Just has the odd virgin, the trouble is it's so hard to find these days anyway.
9: It's really difficult to find them. The 50s.
2: Yeah, so we, we we bring a couple of occasional versions with us. You know, just so we we, we tack them up on the wall and we look, ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> there are versions left. I mean, it's just different people than we you know, were before. You know, I mean, we uh, it's terrible to say, well, we've gotten older, but who the hell hasn't? Um, it's, it's not that, it's just that, you know, once you've experienced all of those things in your life for so many years, I mean, after a while, even, even happiness gets to be a drag after a while. <laughs>
0: As for the shows, everyone in heaven and hell said that they had grown up since they last toured together on Dehumanizer. And they were enjoying going out to restaurants, rocking like a 7.0 earthquake, and getting enough sleep to do it all again the next day, virgins be damned.
2: Well, we're always heavily armed. I mean, it's not a problem for us to have to go out and blast away. I mean, from the first gig to the last gig, whatever the last gig may be from the first one, which we've already played, no, the attitude is always it's always all out it's always you know, we're just such a great band it just always goes out and exceeds itself every single night so you know we don't have to get any kind of mindset we're always ready for it plus yeah, our audiences are great and they, they they motivate you
9: too and they move you along it's been absolutely great and you know it's, it's, it's a pleasure every night to go on stage and really enjoying it and uh, yeah i mean you, you you can't really see an end to the month. It's, its really good fun and you know we've still got a lot to go so it's uh, Looking forward
0: to it. I'm John Wiederhorn, host of Backstaged, The Devil in Metal. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Backstaged Podcast to discuss the show and all things metal. You can also email your thoughts, comments, and questions to Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com That's podcasts, plural. Backstaged at DiversionPodcasts.com Having thoroughly enjoyed their 2007 and 2008 Heaven and Hell tours, The band were itching to get back into the studio and work on more songs. Their creative juices were flowing and they longed to turn Heaven and Hell into a viable recording band, not just a nostalgia trip that did a couple new songs. They jammed around a bit and wrote riffs on the road, but didn't enter serious writing mode until March 2008 when they scheduled two six-week writing sessions before the Metal Masters tour and a final six-week session after the tour for Black Sabbath recording the Devil You Know was as inspiring and productive as the brief session to record their three compilation songs
2: I don't think there are any really pr- any pressures on this one at all I mean I think that you know, we had, as you suggested, proven ourselves all the way down the line. All we needed to do now was to make each other happy with the songs that we wrote and be sure that we were still in the same realm. And that was not a problem at all because, again, the Anthology album did that. We knew we were onto something really good. And then it was just a matter of us getting together and, you know, and writing the things that we knew were going to be good and the things that we wanted to write because we were all of the same mind. We really know what's right and wrong for us. So it's absolutely no problem
8: whatsoever. Well, I think when Tony and Ronnie got together for those three, that, those initial three songs, I think it just surprised everyone, and um, it sort of everything happened so fast after that, it, was, it just felt like it was a natural thing to do, and just happened by itself, a lot, a lot of it. I
2: think we were always happy each day that we accomplished something, we were just so happy and realized that, you know, we were good at what we did. Uh, Maybe we had to reaffirm that each time. I don't know, maybe we didn't have to reaffirm it each time. But it got reaffirmed every time we finished a song. And it was like, four days, new song. Four days, new song. Four days, new song. With time off and day off in, in the middle of the week, and the weekends off. So, hell, if, you know, a couple more days we would have had a double album, or the next one ready to go.
0: It's too bad that didn't happen. Because then we might have had a second Heaven and Hell album to enjoy. No one expected the horrible events that would cut an end to Heaven and Hell's short career. The group launched a tour of Europe in May 2009. In August, they returned to North America for 16 more shows. Those were the final gigs the band ever played. Although no one in the Heaven and Hell or Dio family knew it, Ronnie had been sick since around 2005. Had he been checked by a doctor or received a colonoscopy, a routine procedure for men over 50, doctors would have caught Ronnie's cancer in its early stage. Intestinal and stomach cancer usually develops over a period of five to 10 years. They're easy to detect and treat after a colonoscopy. In 2005, when Wendy first brought Ronnie to a specialist to diagnose his stomach condition, the doctor gave him a stress test and determined the singer had a gas bubble it was easily treatable with over-the-counter antacids. Wendy, who now runs the Dio Cancer Fund to provide awareness, treatment, and research for cancer patients, looks back at the signs and symptoms and is furious she didn't encourage Ronnie to get a colonoscopy back then. But she's well aware that doing so would have been like trying to have a serious conversation during a Motorhead show.
1: But Ronnie didn't care about those things. He never went to the doctors. He was never sick as as far as he was concerned he wasn't sick. Mm. So that's what happens and and if you haven't had been involved in anybody having cancer before you don't really know, you know, you don't you don't think about it.
8: The strange thing was Vinnie and Tony had been in for um what do they call it when they stick the thing up your arm The
7: colonoscopy, right? Yeah.
8: We were discussing the colonoscopy thing uh, in rehearsals, and they just had it done, Vinny'd had it done, (laughs) and he couldn't sit down on his drum stool. (laughs) And um, I was making arrangements to have it done, and Ronnie was going, oh, I'm never going to have anything like that.
0: Throughout 2008, Ronnie was having chronic stomach pains and kept pounding Tums. They worked to a certain extent, but it was pretty clear that it was a short-term fix.
8: We'd say, come on, Ronnie, you can't go on like that. And he'd go, no, I'll be all right once I'm on stage. So he battled through like uh, the last, maybe two or three months of the tour. He just wouldn't let it uh, stop him. And by the end of the tour, the last day, he was like doubled up, almost crying in tears. He was in so much pain. And we flew back to LA. He went to the doctors and they said (laughs) he had trapped wind. (laughs) and uh, they gave him this stuff to take and of course he didn't do anything. He was getting worse. He was crippling him. Mm. And um, we said, you know why? That's a trap win. Go and see a proper doctor. So he went to an oncologist and they said said he's got stage four stomach cancer.
0: Theo was diagnosed in November 2007 after Heaven and Hell finished the tour. At first, Ronnie didn't realize how bad it was. When he learned he had stage four, He figured it was a four on a scale of 10, which meant it wasn't yet halfway to being the worst it could be. So he called up his Dio bandmates and attempted to work on some new material for his planned album trilogy,
8: but he felt too sick to write anything. I think that's when he realized how serious it was. I went with him, me and Ronnie, Wendy, and my wife Gloria went to Houston to the, the top cancer place in America. And he stayed there, had the loads of exams done. And they said, uh, there's not really anything that can be done by now.
0: Despite the dire diagnosis, Dio remained hopeful that he would recover. He scheduled a chemotherapy regimen every two weeks with MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. Geezer and Gloria Butler sat with him for a couple of his treatments. Everyone hoped for the best and showered Ronnie with encouragement
1: and we would skip down the halls and we used to call it beating the dragon we called it the dragon and we're gonna we're gonna beat this dragon and that's uh, what we used to do when we were quite I mean three weeks before Ronnie passed away he was accepted in an award at Golden Gods
0: at the event Dio ruled the room for the last time he sauntered up to the podium in a black colored long sleeve shirt and black jeans he flashed the devil horns and hugged Alice in Chains Mike Inez and Jerry Cantrell who presented him with a Lifetime Achievement Award. During his acceptance speech, he said, quote, It's great to be back amongst people again. It's been a little while since I've been able to do that. But I feel pretty good and can't wait to get back on the stage again. This is so very cool. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love everybody. Thanks a lot. Ronnie did his best to look healthy and act like the elder rock statesman he was. But the cancer had spread throughout his body and was draining his life away. During his final weeks, Dio drummer and close friend Simon Wright, who joined the band after Apisa left, came to the house and helped tend to Ronnie's needs.
4: Now, I remember going over to Ronnie's house and hanging with him, and Simon Wright was there. And Simon took really good care of Ronnie. You mm. know, he had that stent put in where you can just, attached the chemo right to it. You didn't have to keep puncturing the skin and stuff. And he'd had to be cleaned and all this maintenance stuff. And Simon was there with him and took very, very good care of Ronnie. Uh, God bless Simon, you know.
0: The week after the Golden Gods, Wendy threw a party for Ronnie at her home in Santa Barbara. And all of his bandmates and friends came. Ronnie was grateful. But by that time, he knew the celebration was more like a farewell.
8: In the end, he was in a wheelchair, and he could barely stand up. All his hair had fallen out. And the next week, he went into hospital for the last time.
1: It just suddenly came upon him that that Friday morning. Um, he just said, I didn't feel good. He wanted to go... Uh, to see the doctor and I called the doctor who was a friend and he came over and he said, let's go to the hospital right now. And then Ronnie was in so much pain, they gave him so much morphine that he went into a coma.
0: When Wendy knew Deal was on the way out, she contacted Ronnie's family and closest friends and told them to make arrangements for the funeral and to visit.
4: The final days was like, Wendy calling up. He called me up and said, Vin, you better come down Ronnie's in the hospital. It took a turn for the worse. I don't think he's going to make it. I went, oh, fuck, you got to be kidding. So I went to the hospital, and Ronnie was, uh, you know, laying in the bed, but he was all spaced out on morphine and shit, but he looked terrible. What were his final words to you? Do you remember? No, no. There were no words because he, you know, when you get to that state, you're so high on morphine, you're kind of sleeping and shit. Yeah. And uh, you're unconscious. Basically, only one time when I was there, he, the doctor wanted everybody, was everybody was there. It was every, I mean, there was friends, there was so many people there. It was like a party, you know? But Ronnie was kind of unconscious, you know? <clears throat> and the doctor wanted everybody out of the room, so he said, uh, everybody has to leave the room, you know? So I looked at Ronnie, I just touched him, and I said, Ron, we'll be back shortly. And all of a sudden he opened his eyes and he looked at me. I could never forget it, he looked at me about 30 seconds, like it was normal. And then he didn't say anything, Just his eyes opened, stared at me, closed his eyes again, and I felt it, you know?
0: Ronnie James Dio died from stomach cancer on May 16th, 2010. He was 67. Two weeks after he passed, there was a public memorial service at the Hall of Liberty Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills, Los Angeles. The place was packed, and many grieving fans sat outside and watched the memorial on giant screens. Musicians who performed and gave speeches included Rudy Sarzo, Jeff Tate, John Payne, Glenn Hughes, Joey Belladonna, and Heaven and Hell keyboard player Scott Warren.
4: Afterward was basically a service. Everybody got up and talked and old stories and and all that stuff. And it was uh, pretty heavy, you know, but there were so many great stories and so much inspiration that Ronnie passed along, so it was kind of sad and happy at the same time.
0: Ronnie James Dio is gone, but his vast catalog of music lives on and continues to inspire new generations of artists who are discovering the music of Rainbow, Black Sabbath, Dio and Heaven and Hell, maybe for the first time. Ronnie knew that a great song was immortal and transcendent, and no matter how loud it was, if it was well-crafted, it could be replicated or reinterpreted. That brings me back to the Stand Up and Shout for Ronnie's birthday benefit, which is just one of the events keeping Dio's legacy alive. There were many highlights at the livestream concert, including an acoustic performance by Tenacious D, But one of the standouts was clearly XYZ and great white vocalist Terry Illus, who brought a pair of Latino guitarists on stage and turned heaven and hell into a lively finger-picked celebration of culture and songwriting. Also worth noting is teenage guitar master Jasmine Starr, who deftly ripped through leads from a who's who of legendary guitarists Theo played with, and reminded us that the real turbulence of rock and roll lives in youth, whether they're 12 or a young hearted 60. As Dio shouted in rainbow, with a voice that could shatter cement walls, long live rock and roll. In addition to keeping Dio's memory fresh by staging events for the Dio Cancer Fund, Wendy Dio recently worked with English journalist Mick Wall to edit and expand Ronnie James Dio's autobiography, Rainbow in the Dark, which comes out July 27, 2021. Wendy is also working with artists on a graphic novel, based on some of Dio's lyrics, and a full-length documentary, which should come out in 2022. Since she's so dedicated in pursuing the battle to detect, treat, and cure cancer, let's give Wendy the final word about battling the disease, which has taken its toll on every gender, nationality, race, and ethnicity, sparing neither the unknown nor the famous the wealthy nor the destitute.
1: We're working actually together with a doctor at UCLA right now. Uh, we're, we're funding the research for, um, uh, because most of the, uh, the cancer that we support is like uh, research for um, colon cancer, um, pancreatic cancer, stomach cancers, all cancers and a lot of time with men's cancers and men don't like to go and get checked because they don't want them to put the finger at the bum and so now we're working on this with this guy who's, who's um, this doctor who, who is developing a, a saliva test mm. that you could go when you just go for a regular checkup and just get the saliva test and, and it has really early early positive results
0: Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio and is available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, John Wiederhorn. produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye and our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Clem Fandango is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein, executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Thanks for listening to Backstage, The Devil in Metal. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out my book, Raising Hell, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, on
6: Diversion Books. To purchase John's book, please go to Amazon.com or bookshop.org.
1: Diversion Podcasts.